Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, we have the news as usual with me, Brittany, Clinton, Sam. And then we have two interviews. The first one, we're joined by Kerry Washington ahead of the release of her new Netflix show, American Son. And then we have a quick check-in with presidential candidate Julian Castro talking about his plans around criminal justice reform. And the inspirational word this week is actually a poem by our own Clint Smith III. Let's go. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint. And as many of you know, a few months ago, I had the incredible privilege of being able to be a part of the 1619 Project, which was an issue of New York Times Magazine curated by Nicole Hannah-Jones that explored the 400-year uh, history and legacy of slavery in this country on the 400th anniversary of the first enslaved Africans coming to the British colonies. And I had two poems in that issue, and I figured that I would start the podcast off by reading those poems for you today. So this is the first one, and it is about the Middle Passage. Over the course of 350 years, 36,000 slave ships crossed the Atlantic Ocean. I walk over to the globe and move my finger back and forth between the fragile continents. I try to keep count of how many times I drag my hand across the bristled hemispheres, but grow weary of chasing a history that swallowed me. For every hundred people who were captured and enslaved, 40 died before they ever reached the new world. I pull my index finger from Angola to Brazil and feel the bodies jumping from the ship. I drag my thumb from Ghana to Jamaica and feel the weight of dysentery make an anvil of my touch. I slide my ring finger from Senegal to South Carolina and feel the ocean separate a million families. The soft hum of history spins on its tilted axis, a cavalcade of ghost ships, Wash their hands of all they carried. And this poem is about Hurricane Katrina and those left in the Superdome after the storm. A helicopter hovers overhead like a black cloud of smoke, its blades dismembering the pewter sky. Men in uniform stand outside with guns nested under their arms in the hot, wet air of August licking their weary faces. Two women push a homemade raft through the warm brown water that rises up and hugs their chests. There's an old man inside the raft who was once a stranger to them when such a word meant something other than please help me. Inside, children are running across the emerald turf, jumping through rings of light that spill from the sky onto the field, their small bodies sprinting between the archipelago of sprawled cots. There is a mother who sits high in the seats of the stadium rocking her baby back and forth, her voice cocooning the child in a shell of song. Before desperation descended under the roof, before the stench swept across the air like a heavy fog, before the lights went out and the buses arrived, before the cameras came inside and showed the failure of an indifferent nation, there were families inside, though there were some who failed to call them families. There were children inside, though there were some who gave them a more callous name. There were people inside, though there were some who only saw a parade of disembodied shadows. Hey, y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Packetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. So listen, I want to ask you all how your Halloweens were. And I specifically want to ask you that because I am consistently the person in everybody's friend group that forgets Halloween is coming. <laughs> when I get a Halloween party invitation, I'm like, I don't know if I feel like deciding what to be. So I'm going to just go as the same tired woman I am every single day. And then when Halloween actually gets here, I like don't really care that much for myself except for when I like see little kids walking around in their costumes. So I need to ask you all how you all's Halloween was because my Halloween was literally like every other day. So I'm living that living that dad Halloween life. And so you only really have a few years before your kids begin to have physical agency over like how they decide they want to dress. And so, you know, we have a two-year-old and a and at eight month old, so they have no choice, right? I don't know what three will bring. I don't know what four will bring. I don't know when he's going to start saying no. I don't want to dress up as XYZ. But they were Nemo and Dory from Finding Nemo. And so they were the little fish and they dressed up and we put them together and they were running around and we'd go outside and all the kids were like, we found Nemo. And, and Baby J was like, 
well, hi, I'm Nemo. So he was running around pretending to swim. He's now figured out how to make like a, a fishy face. And so he was like squeezing his cheeks in together and tr- making a fish noise, which he's just like, blop, blop, blop. And he just like <laughs> runs around blopping. What were you dressed as? I taped a piece of blank paper to my chest and I said, I am my dissertation. <laughs> just kidding. It's just kidding. That's like the most joking. costume I've, I've ever heard of. <laughs> oh my God. This is the second week in a row I've made a dissertation joke. I promise I'm working on it. And that is why I keep making these jokes because it's all I am doing right now. But this is our first Halloween in which our toddler is like cognizant of what's going on really. So he was just like, people are putting candy in my light up Halloween bucket but we don't really do a lot of sugar at the house. We don't do a lot of candy. It was like pounds and pounds of candy. And then somebody gave him some pretzels. And so we got home and we were like, what do you want? Because we were like, all right, this is the one time of year. We'll give him some candy. And he was like, the pretzels. And so <laughs> we were like, it works out for everybody. Oh. Our pure, pure child. That's some good parenting right there. Let me know Let me know when that book comes out. Probably Man, after the dissertation. Look, or it could backfire. And then as soon as he goes to a sleepover, he's like, what have you been keeping me from? <laughs> What are these nihilators? Right. <laughs> uh, DeRay, I saw that you were um, a cool Jackie Robinson and that um, you had a little bit of help with your costume. Quite quality help. I was Jackie Robinson, DeLon Burnside. Shout out to DeLon. He made the 42 out of tape on the back of the Dodgers jersey. Um, you know, I never played baseball, but I had on like baseball clothes. I didn't know that baseball pants don't have pockets in them. Learn that. <laughs> that was a small learning. I felt like I should be a something civil rightsy. So Jackie worked. It was good. Sam, were you something? Oh my gosh. So I have a confession. I was not a good Halloween celebrator. So I was like one of these people that didn't prepare. So I didn't have candy in the house. Terrible. Yeah, I was a bad Halloweener for sure. So I'm like hiding out in the house, hearing all of these like kids going around outside. And there's all this laughter and like getting candy. And I'm just like, I hope nobody knocks on the door. Like I don't disappoint anybody. And then I I always like remember back, you know, when I was a little kid and there would be these houses where you knock on the door and like they give you like carrots or something. And I was always like, you know, are they just mean? But now I kind of get it. Like maybe they just didn't have candy and like it crept up on them. Suddenly it was Halloween. They felt like they had to do something. So I was like one of those people. Next time you should pass out like copies of Native Son or something (laughs) like that. (laughs) Brittany, stop it. Keep that door closed if you ain't got no candy. I'm for real. No, listen, I feel like here's some food for your brain. Here is <laughs> here is one of the great authors. You can pass out like a pocket-sized volume of Langston Hughes poetry. Sam, you keep can, the door oh, closed. Oh, no, here's one. We can give people the latest data set from Campaign Zero and then be like, this is really for your parents. You're welcome. I'm out here trying to protect your life. Happy Halloween. Anyway, shout out to Halloween. Shout out to the parents who wrangled their children. Shout out to the parents who gave all of us childless folks something very entertaining and adorable to look at, including you, Clint, and Ariel. Shout out to the little barefoot, pint-sized astronaut that was walking around at a coffee shop where I was working. He was literally the most adorable little person I've ever seen. Shout out to um, all the sugar rushes that parents had to recover from the next day. And now the news. So my news is about college and the rising cost of paying for college, and in particular, where those costs actually break down. So an article that came out about a month ago called What If Everyone Applied to College had a number of statistics around college access and completion by income. But one of the things that really stood out to me was a chart where they looked at the cost of public four-year colleges by income quartile. So they broke down income into four categories, four buckets. And they looked at the proportion of college costs that were tuition and fees and the proportion that were room and board for each of those income categories. And what was fascinating about this is that they showed that for folks in the lowest income category, they were actually $0 in tuition and fees, but almost $12,000 on average in room and board costs to attend a public four-year college. That contrasts with the highest income quartile, which overall paid more to go to college, but the costs were more evenly split between tuition and fees and room and board. So they paid on average about $8.3,000 
for tuition and fees and $14.2,000 on room and board. So this was fascinating because throughout this campaign, we've heard a number of candidates propose plans to make college more affordable. And many of those proposals have centered around two things. Number one, making college tuition free for a public four-year college. And number two, alleviating student loan debt. And it struck me in looking at this chart that so much of the cost of going to college, particularly for folks who are low income, actually has to do with room and board costs and not college tuition and fees. So I wanted to bring that to the conversation to think about, first of all, are we talking about the right things and the right proposals with regard to making college more affordable from an equity point of view? And number two, if we are to make college tuition free without addressing the cost of room and board, what the data suggests is that this could actually exacerbate inequities by alleviating the burden that richer kids are paying on college tuition and fees without really alleviating the burden of room and board that tends to be borne by folks in the lower income quartile. One of the things I thought was most interesting about this article is the idea to make the college application process universal, right? So this idea that all public universities and colleges nationwide would use a single free application form similar to the one that's used by California state schools. And high schools would give students time to fill out the application form during class. They would help them fill out FAFSA along with some lessons to prepare them with the process. And students could choose not to apply, but the default would be for everyone to do so. And I'm, I'm really interested in the ways in which we think about what is the default setting for a lot of our, our policies. So when I taught in uh, Prince George's County, Maryland, I don't know if this was a state thing or a district thing or something larger than that, but uh, they made it so that every student at our school took the SAT. Maybe that was part of like a larger initiative with the SAT where they were trying to increase access because one of the issues was that so many people weren't taking the SAT and thus weren't even putting themselves in a position to be able to apply for college because especially low-income students, you know, have a million set of circumstances that might prevent them from signing up for the test, getting to the test, all of these things that more affluent students don't ever have to even think about. And so as a result of every student taking the test, like during the school day, right, we had a school day or a school morning set aside where all the students took the test. I think the number of students in our district who had taken the test increased exponentially because it was something that was the default. We were making sure everybody was doing it. So one thing I'm just interested in is like how many of our policies would look different if they were opt-in and rather than opt-out. So how would voting look different if every person was automatically registered when they came of age instead of having to register? How would the amount of people looking for organ transplants be different if we were all automatically made to be organ donors when we signed up to get our driver's license instead of it being something we had to opt into? And I think that there's something to be said for a lot of these policies that would move closer toward equity, move closer toward access, would move closer toward closing a lot of the, the gaps that we see if we made it so that people had to make a decision to leave something, to opt out of something rather than opt in. And in addition to what you brought up, Sam, I just thought that that point that the article made was really interesting and something I had never considered. I think it's an incredibly powerful article because in so many ways, requiring at the very least a bachelor's degree is considered default in our country. There are so many roles that if you apply, you have to have a bachelor's degree, whereas once upon a time that used to be a high school diploma. There are roles that I have hired for where I have had to go back to our human assets team and say this job actually shouldn't require a bachelor's degree because the skills therein can be learned otherwise. And still, society treats college like a default, and so why not treat treat application and admission like a default. Most certainly, I would hope that if that is the direction that we move into, that an ancillary effect would be that college would become, as you've already said, much more affordable. I was recently talking to someone who is in their 30s and having to still be dealing with the fallout of having a whole lot of student debt. And this person is a person of color and they were embarrassed by their circumstance. And I said, look, you don't need to be embarrassed by the fact that you did precisely what this country requires of you, that you went and got your education so that you could be on a path to liberation in your own life in as much as possible. This country should be embarrassed that we require people to do this and charge them so much to make it happen. And that on top of it, we're still not actually giving them the kind of value for their education such that if you are black or brown, you are seeing the fruits of your labor come into fruition in the way of generational wealth. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. 
In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah. <sighs> Look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax. You booked a Verbo. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. So for my news, I want to talk about a decision made by the Board of Governors of the NCAA, which oversees college sports. And it announced last week that it had voted unanimously to adjust the rules that prohibit players from generating money from their own fame. The move, though, comes only after lawmakers in several states have begun proposing or enacting legislation that gives college athletes the right to profit off their name and likeness. For example, last month, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed the Fair Pay to Play Act, which gave college athletes the ability to earn income from endorsements and sponsorships starting in 2023. More than a dozen states reportedly are considering legislation similar to California's and we're having their uh, legislation coming up to the chambers in the next several months. 
And so while the new rules won't promote equity in all sports, they will offer more fairness to individual players. And the policy change will at least allow the most prominent athletes in college to receive something close to what will be their fair market value. And so, you know, there are going to be some who argue that the rule change will largely benefit star athletes, you know, big time quarterbacks at Alabama or top college basketball players at Kentucky, which is in some ways true, but it's also not always the case. And one of the best examples of this is that many of you will remember uh, Caitlin Ohashi from UCLA, who is a gymnast and her gymnastics floor routine that went viral. I think it was earlier this year or last year, got over 100 million views across the world. People were sharing it in everywhere. For a few weeks, she was legitimately one of the most popular athletes in the world, and she was being presented with these opportunities that she couldn't imagine. But because of the NCAA rules, she couldn't take advantage of any of the financial opportunities that were being presented to her um, that would have changed the trajectory of her life. And there was a momentum that she was forced to miss as a result of that. And in in a New York Times op-ed about a month ago, she wrote, the NCAA is a billion-dollar industry built on the backs of college athletes. How different would things have been for me if I was able to use my image and my name the last year of school in order to promote the things that I want to further my future? Ohashi is a great example of this because she's not going pro. And more generally, she's part of a sport that doesn't have a pro league. So this was especially damaging for her because this isn't money that she can make up with a big time salary in the future. And there's a gendered piece to this, right? Women only receive 4% of sports media coverage. So the opportunity to leverage sponsorship deals and endorsement opportunities is especially important for a demographic of people who have far fewer opportunities to go pro. And even if they go pro are getting lower salaries or getting less media attention. So it seems like a good thing. It seems like the NCAA is stepping in the right direction, but there are some observers like Sally Jenkins at the Washington Post who are skeptical of it and who says that the NCAA still denies athletes their natural economic rights. It hijacks their name, images, and likeness for financial gain. A football player at Alabama can't sign his own autograph for money or endorse a car dealership. Meanwhile, the coach of Alabama, Nick Saban, makes $9 million a year. And she says that if you look closely at the NCAA's verbiage, uh, you will find buried in there some key phrases that show how desperate its leaders are to delay and obfuscate and make things seem more vague than they are. They say compensation for anything related to athletic performance will still be impermissible. And you have a bunch of things that are in quotes there. So what we know is that we need these states to continue to bring these bills up to their legislative chambers because that's the only way the NCAA has proven it's going to respond to anything. And ultimately, it is going to benefit low-income folks who are coming into these spaces who otherwise are being stripped of opportunities that they rightfully should have. You know, there are a couple of things that are on my mind when I think about this. The first is just like setting the ground. So we think about their 1,100 NCAA member schools, about 500,000 young people, that this is interesting because it would obviously impact the bigger schools. But like Clint talked about, it would allow even the athletes at small schools to have a relationship with the local mom and pop, have a relationship with the local car dealership, have a relationship with the local store or business in town that is already sort of a big part of the local community. The other thing is this question of who is actually on the NCAA's board of governors. Let me help you figure out who is not on the board. To 21 voting members, it's eight chancellors or presidents from Division One board of directors from the football subdivision institutions, two chancellors or presidents from the Division One board of directors football championship subdivision institutions, two chancellors or presidents from the Division One board of directors from Division One subdivision institutions, two D2 chancellors or presidents from the D2 President's Council, two D3 chancellors or presidents from the Division Three President's Council, and five independent public members. Now, none of those people are players. None of those people are athletes at any of these. Grant Hill is interestingly on the board. He's the only person who is there as a former player and not representing an institution. Also, Vivek Murthy, if you remember Vivek, he was the 19th Surgeon General of the United States, and Dennis McDonough, who is a former White House Chief of Staff, and Ken Chenault, who used to be the CEO of American Express. But again, athletes aren't represented at all on the board. And it would be interesting to think about the next wave of reform being a demand that athletes actually be represented as voting members of the governing body of the NCAA, that without athletes, there is no NCAA. I think that'd be an interesting sort of push and challenge. The other thing is to remember that the governing board, what they actually said is that they gave each division a January 2021 deadline to change the rules to be in accordance with the idea that athletes can benefit. So we actually don't don't know what the rules will be. 
what I can imagine they would do a little cynically is actually allow athletes and then tax them heavily for any revenue that the athlete does see. And the last thing I'll say is about the history of the phrase student athlete is that a lot of people think about that phrase because we all grew up with it. But the phrase was actually admitted by not the NCAA. It was admitted by somebody and then adopted by the NCAA very quickly uh, as a way to get around workers' comp. So the way that workers' comp works is if you get injured on the job, then your health insurance doesn't pay for workers' comp, which is administrated by management or the company or the school. Workers' comp pays for injuries that happen in the workplace. And there's an athlete that got hurt. And he filed a workers' comp claim. And the NCAA used the student-athlete phrase as a way to legally maneuver around it, saying that he wasn't a full-time athlete, therefore not a real employee. He wasn't a full-time student. And it was their sort of like way to play in the middle that allowed them to really ignore all claims of injuries from athletes. And they still are able to essentially get away with it in a way that you would not be able to if athletes were considered covered under workers' comp because you are just responsible for the life of the injury with workers' comp. So I thought that was really interesting. So we'll see what the NCAA does. You know, I'm mindful that the only reason they did anything this time is because of outside pressure. So I encourage uh, the LeBrons of the world and the legislators to still keep fighting. You know, I'm beginning to think that the title of this episode should be Students, They Deserve Better. Because my news is also about schools, specifically California schools, even more specifically, the University of California system. They did what so many people actually thought was impossible. Um, They created what's essentially a much more egalitarian higher education system. It is a massive public education system, not just for K through 12, but for kindergarten through post-college. Again, that was impossible to a lot of people, but California did it, kind of. What happened in effect is that in order to process a huge volume of applications that began to come in as baby boomers aged and to also essentially steal professors who might defect from the Ivy League and be attracted to the idea that there are high achieving students sitting in these classrooms, the University of California system for all of its equal playing field still decided to keep the SATs as an admissions requirement. You can guess what happened next. So residential segregation leads to education segregation. This is not news to us. But what we also know is that segregated schools are the most under-resourced. And if you didn't know, SAT and SAT scores don't actually correlate with intelligence. They most correlate with parental income, parental educational attainment, race, ethnicity, and whether or not you can access a high-end test prep course. So even for the kids who are getting the best grades in low-income schools, they are always at a disadvantage. In fact, according to the Center for Studies in Higher Education, ironically at UC Berkeley, if the University of California system were to consider only grades, this is a quote from The New Yorker, then 12% of the top 10th of its applicants would actually be African-American and Latino students. If it were to consider only test scores, that number would fall to 5%. Just another piece piece of data that shows us this system as it stands is completely skewed. So now a coalition of civil rights lawyers alongside the Compton Unified School District sent a letter to the University of California alerting them to a plan to sue the entire system if they don't drop the use of the SAT and ACT completely. There are actually two other lawsuits like this happening on the other side of the country, one against Harvard, who has been enduring its own battles on the issue of affirmative action, and one against the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. We've already discussed multiple times on this podcast that aptitude tests have their roots in systemic racism and anti-Semitism. They were literally built to keep people out of schools, not to get people into schools. So this article begs the question, what happens if we remove the barrier? What's interesting about this, Brittany, is that the lawsuit you referenced, they are suing about the ACT and SAT, but they are not suing about the AP test. They are explicitly not including the AP test as something to be excluded. And I was interested in like why you would keep the AP test uh, and, and not take the SAT and ACT. And just for a primer for people, 
is it there about 40 AP tests that are offered? There is one ACT and one ACT. There are different versions of tests across the country, but the test is the test. You don't get to choose. The AP, you take it by subject. So you take like the AP US history test, the AP French test, the AP algebra test. And what's interesting about it is I remember the big difference between the AP test and the SAT is that the AP tests are directly tied to a class. Like you have to take the class to take the test. And then you get college credit if you pass the test. The SAT is more of a general aptitude. So it is this idea of like what you should have learned all through school. It's uh, much more general in its approach to curriculum than the focus of the AP test. Now, what's interesting is that the disparities are still really aggressive when we think about the AP test. It has been really helpful with the expansion. So in 2005, only 6% of high school seniors took APs who were Black. That was 9.5 in 2015. Latino Hispanic population participation grew to 20% over that time period from 13%. And then for low-income students, it went from 15% to 30%. So way more black and brown people and poor students are taking them, which is huge. The downside is that over 70% of uh, black students and and about 60% of uh, Hispanics who took the AP test in 2016 didn't pass. So there is a lot of work to do. The failure rate in general is around 42%. Now, what's interesting about the AP test, though, and Clint, you remember this as a high school teacher, is that people can take the test a set of times. You know, there are people who take like the AP Gov test as a sophomore. They take it again as a senior. If you get a four, you get a four. There's an opportunity for growth there. And because it is heavily subject-based, that is seen to be more fair. So I thought that was interesting. There are a lot of places like New York that has an AP for All program. There are about 30 states that subsidize the AP exam, which again is about access and about 20 other states that have incentives for teachers who have strong AP scores. So I thought that was just interesting that there are a set of tests or there is a test that people are excluding from this conversation about tests being wholly bad. Uh, My news is that nearly 60% of all Black people now live in suburbs. Black people, Hispanics, and Asian together make up nearly one-third of the suburban population. And what was interesting about this for me is uh, that what we know is that cities are urban and they are becoming blue centers. Rural communities are becoming more and more conservative and they are sort of just holding out. But the suburbs are becoming the battleground. So many of the biggest wins that allowed the Dems to take back the House in the midterms were fought in the suburbs. So the suburbs are actually becoming these places that are much more diverse than they have ever been. And that is due sometimes to people moving, sometimes to some housing assistance programs, sometimes to refugee resettlement centers. But what's happening is like we know that they're becoming more blue. And I just wanted to bring this here because there's so many people that talk about cities as the places where people of color are dominating and that in the suburbs and in rural communities, there are not people of color there and that we shouldn't talk about equity and justice in those places because cities is the place where all of the disparities show up. And what the data is showing is that the suburbs are actually a place where we should be talking about issues of equity and justice and paying attention that 60% of all Black people living in the suburbs is sort of a wild notion that when I saw this, and this was reported in the New York Times, the article's called Are the Suburbs Turning Democratic? I just want to bring this here uh, as a like small and important data set. This is really fascinating, uh, and it intersects with so many different issues that we all care about and that we work on. For me in particular, I'm thinking about the intersection between these demographic shifts and police shootings and other forms of police violence. Because when you look at the data around police violence over the past several years, you actually see a pretty substantial decline in police shootings in larger cities. We've seen a a drop of about 70% in police shootings in Chicago, for example. There's a substantial drop in Baltimore. There's an even larger drop between 80 and 90% in Oakland. And at the same time, while there are a number of factors that explain that, policy and practice factors, organizing efforts, um, but one of the other things that might explain this is the change in demographics. Because when you look at these same cities, a lot of the black population has actually been gentrified out, pushed out. 
and pushed into the suburbs. That really forced us to think about to what extent are changes in not only police violence, but you also see this happening in incarceration rates, where rates are going down in big cities, but are staying constant or even increasing in suburban or rural communities. And so, you know, all of this intersects with the issues that we care about. We have to be thinking about how population shifts can also impact the numbers around issues of incarceration, issues around health, issues around education, and then what that means when folks are pushed out of cities and into the suburbs where many of the changes that have been made in big cities are not in effect in smaller jurisdictions. All of those things we have to be thinking about when we're doing the work. That's the news. And now our conversation with the actress, Carrie Washington. Carrie, thanks so much for joining us today on Party of the People. It is my distinct pleasure and honor to speak with you. It's been long overdue. You know, I talked to your partner at his movie, but I, I we know. haven't talked about this show. So I'm excited. Can you, let's start with the Netflix movie and the play, American Sum. This is such a different role than what we have seen you in before. Can you talk about how you even got to it? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, that's part of why I think I was so drawn to it when I read it was because I felt like it was so different from anything I've ever done before. And in particular, what I've been doing for seven seasons at Scandal. But basically, when it was announced that it was going to be our final season, you know, that was kind of a <laughs> a newsworthy event um, in some circles. And a producer that I worked with on Broadway about 10 years ago, he read that and he called me and said, I have three projects I want to send you. It's time for you to come back to the theater. And I was like, I love the theater, but what I really want to do is take a nap. <laughs> like, I was real tired. Um, <laughs> and But he said, you know, one of them, Kenny Leon, is attached to direct. And I love Kenny. And so that was the first out of the three pieces of material he sent me. The first one I read was American Sun. And I was just blown away. I was, I mean, I was just going to start it that night and finish it when I could the next day. But I stayed up till two in the morning. I couldn't put it down. I felt like once I set foot in that room with this family, like I couldn't let them down. I couldn't leave them. I had to find Jamal. I knew it was something that I needed to do. This is a script that is in so many ways about police violence, about policing, about what it means to be a parent in a moment where Black parents are afraid of what the state might do to their kids. How did this relate to your own, your parent, your mom, your Black mom, your Black kids? How is that as an actress and like going home at night, having to deal with this in the real world and on the screen? Yeah, it's such a complicated question. I mean, I felt like I was always approaching the material kind of on parallel tracks. So there was the one track that was deeply personal and kind of the psychological unfolding of who is Kendra. She is a woman. She's a black woman. She's a black mom. What does that mean? What do I know about those things? And what do I know about the vulnerability of being the mother of black children? That was obviously a very, it's funny because I hear myself talk about it and I, I feel like when I talk about it, I sometimes sound very academic maybe because it's hard to go back into the pocket of of really what it felt like to be on this exploration because it was so deeply personal and painful at times. So there was that personal, you know, exploration. And so there was a lot about, you know, what I experience as a black mom and also what I experience that is similar to Jamal's journey, right? Like that being the face of the race, being one of the first, being one of the only, like I have, I also have a lot of context around Jamal's experience and Kendra's experience in terms of interracial relationship and being a black professional woman and traveling in different circles. And there was a lot that I felt like I could bring from my personal experience or the people that I'm close to as a daughter, as a mother, all of that. But then there was this parallel track as I was unfolding the character of Kendra that was about more than me. It was about this more historical um, state violence that is embedded in our DNA as a people in this country and all over the world. 
So I felt like not only was I bringing Carrie's context to the role, but I really felt like my job in this play was to honor our full experience as a people also and be willing to embody the fear that we carry because of our long tradition of state-sanctioned violence against our bodies. So I had a wall in my dressing room to remind me. It was kind of my honor and remembrance wall. And it was the room that I warmed up in before every show. And on that wall, I had images to remind me of that larger legacy, that larger context. And so I had all the names that we say in the material. I had Philando Castile's name and picture and Tamir Rice and Eric Garner. But I also had slave ships up there. And I had images of lynchings up there. And I had also to not leave out the women, you know, I had Sandra Bland up there and I had Corinne Gaines up there. And um, and every time there would be another incident during the course of making this play and then film, I would add the pictures and add the names. And um, there was always this kind of duality of being willing to dive very deep on a personal level, but also being willing to kind of surrender to this larger legacy. One of the things that Brittany wanted me to talk to you about was she was there the night that you met with the mothers of victims of police violence in Kimberly Crenshaw. And she said it was a really incredibly powerful night. What was that like? It's one thing, as you know, to tell other people's stories and to sort of know the stories generally. It's another thing to see people impacted so intensely by the stories that we tell and the work that we do. What was that like? I feel like the film does two really powerful things. <laughs> There's a lot of duality in this in this work. Um, you know, to one extent, by making Jamal half black and half white, the writer, Christopher Demos Brown, has done a beautiful job of having white folks and anybody who hasn't felt disenfranchised or victimized in this way, giving them a way in to this experience, right? Because people would tell me when they came to see the show, people who were not African-American, they would say, I felt like Jamal belonged to us as much as he belonged to his blackness. And so the dangers that he's up against become not just one community's problem, but we're reminded as an audience that like if any of our children are in danger, we are all accountable. So I think that's a really beautiful thing that the film does is it, it wakes us all up to the fact that this could be our child, regardless of what race we are. We should feel that the loss of life and the fear of loss of life is everybody's responsibility and is a fear that should belong to every community, whether you are black or not. But I also think what happens in the film is that our particular experience, the experience of black folks, our fear is affirmed and held up and honored. I said to somebody at a talk back a couple of days ago, like, you know, I dare you to step into this film with Kendra for 90 minutes and then tell me that black mothers are overreacting or that black people are overreacting in our communities. Like if you let yourself walk in these shoes with this family, you understand the trauma that we're up against, what it means to be missing your child in the middle of the night, why we fear the way we do. So I knew early on that I wanted to invite some mothers of the movement to the show and Eric Garner's mom came and Philando's mom came and, and that was important to me because I wanted to give myself that level of accountability. Like I wanted to make sure that the Kendra I was putting out into the world was a Kendra that I could proudly put in front of these mothers and sisters, like Sandra Bland's sister came, that I could put out in front of these family members and that they would feel honored and feel respected and feel like I was bringing light and voice to their struggle. I'm always interested in in the way that people in positions like you who, who become storytellers in a much bigger scale, like on a stage or on TV around these issues, what you learned about the system in the process. So like, I think about this is something that heavily policing, we don't see Jamal. This is so centered on the idea of a, of a parent and, and the system and what that looks like. 
What did you learn in the process? Or like, what were some things that you uncovered or were surprised by in the process of just like going through putting the story together? Oh, gosh. Yeah, there were so many things. I mean, one thing I realized kind of early on in the rehearsal process that I didn't really expect to be as complex as it was for me was how to embody Kendra's anger. Because I feel like we don't have a lot of examples in our storytelling tradition of this kind of justified black female anger that, you know, when we see it, you know, you think about Serena Williams and the judgment about her justified anger. So to try to embody anger in a way that like brings the audience with me was so interesting for me. I wound up reading um, Brittany Cooper's book in the rehearsal process and really, 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 really loved it, Eloquent Rage. And I felt like that was, you know, figuring out how to embody that in a way that audiences would understand and would be on board with was a fascinating process. And I found that Kendra, you know, she's not only the only woman in the play, but she's also the only one without a badge. So she's dealing with her powerlessness and misogyny and control in so many ways on so many levels. And I think it was also really fun and exciting for me to figure out how she's code switching and how she's like, she's meeting these three opponents in the ring and she has very different fighting styles with each of them because that's what we do. And sort of to codify that, to put that into the piece in a way that was really specific and I could embody that for audiences to understand, like we will twist ourselves in a pretzel. We know how to fit into every context you need us to because that's how we survive and try to access power. And even just that, like to have played seven seasons on Scandal, basically always being the most powerful person in the room to then really have to work from the position of spending 90 minutes eight times a week desperately trying to get some power, some agency to get what I need to find my kid. I think that what's interesting about experiences like American Son is that it forces people to see the way that institutions like the police actually function in like momentary interactions. Because most people of privilege sort of experience the police as like a thing on the news. They're like, the police stopped that crime? Like, they actually don't have a back and forth with the police officer. That's right. And then, you know, you have a million of them, so... (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the things that is also handled really beautifully in this piece is the role that unconscious bias plays in our interactions. And you see how all four characters, they're all very, very different characters with different perspectives, but their unconscious prejudice is just out there for the world to see. And I don't think I learned that. I think I've experienced those interactions, but I was really struck by Officer Stokes, the kind of old school African-American perspective of sit down and shut up and do what I tell you, like to really see that embodied in the modern day, it helped me understand how, and I knew this intellectually, but again, to see it embodied, it was a reminder of how you can have officers of color, but if they have signed up to belong to an institution that is rooted and traffics in racism, then they will have to make sense of that in a way to participate in that system, unless the system is willing to do the work to uncover the bias and do better training, which, and I know those examples exist, and we had some of those folks come to see the play and be part of talkbacks, but really figuring out how to hold officers accountable so that their perspective, when based in fear, is not treated as truth. Really spending more time thinking about that has been, from a selfish perspective, really, really valuable. And I'm grateful for that extra insight. And I'm grateful that audiences have been given pause to consider more the role of unconscious bias and systematic institutionalized racism in these contexts. And you talk about the audience. You know, I think that with an experience like this, so much of the work, as I know you know, uh, so much of it happens afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. Like after people finish the last minute or after people, you know, leave the theater, 
then it's like either you sort of choose to do some work on yourself and the way you think about the world. And, you know, I'd even push, you know, we talk about unconscious bias a lot. And sort of we'd say is that so much of this bias is actually conscious, right? That like, you know, you think about your back and forth with the officer or is he in a gang? It's not, he doesn't, the officer doesn't say is he in a gang, but does he have a nickname or something? Remember yeah, does that? he have a street were, name? Uh-huh. Does he have a street name? He knows he's not asking white kids that. You know what I mean? I know, but I don't think he understands that there's anything wrong with not asking white kids that. I don't think he takes the next leap to understand that that's wrong. I think he thinks that's like a reasonable thing to ask because in his experience, all of the black kids he knows on his job and his perspective are those kids. He doesn't meet the Jamals. He's not exposed from his perspective through his lens. He's only seeing one kind of kid. Now, his lens is dirty. It's crooked. It's not accurate. But I think he thinks he's asking the right questions for the community that he services. And that, to me, is the problem. And I think you're right. I think it's both the problem. I think, like, the fact that he he's not even aware in that moment that he's asking me things that are upsetting and offensive to me. The unconscious part of it is is a huge problem. And also what you're saying, the fact that he may know and he may not care. And I think there are officers that fall all along that spectrum. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's a fair push. I just always worry about the way we inadvertently let people off the hook with the phrase unconscious bias. Like the whole space yeah. does it, you know, people like that. And you're like, ah, seem pretty conscious to me, you know? I think that's right. I'm going to think more about that. I think that's right. To the other push, though, and you started to talk about this, is how have you understood some of the work to be that people have done afterwards? Do you have a sense? uh, Have people reached out? I don't know. What does that look like? Yeah. So for me, I felt like even though I am committed, or maybe because we're committed at my company at Simpson Street to make material that is provocative and insightful and forces people to examine their place in humanity and find connections to where they fit in this human story. I think we knew that if we were going to put this play and now this film out in the world, we had to do it with some tools. So we partnered with the Opportunity Agenda and created a robust discussion guide that has ways to talk about the material, ways to communicate with the material, but also ways to impact these issues, how to make a difference, what organizations are working on these issues. You can donate money or donate time or donate energy to be able to combat the stuff that is brought up in the play. So I noticed that people were so struck after the performance that they were kind of stumbling out of the play, not really knowing how to talk about it. And so I worked with the Schubert organization to put the discussion guide into every playbill so that when people get home and they're, they go to their programs to be like, where did I know that actor from? Or where's that director? You know, who wrote this thing? That they were there. The discussion guides were there with them in their homes. And they also lived on a website. And so that discussion guide still lives in the world at opportunityagenda.org. And we've been encouraging people to use it, to go to it, to allow it to guide them in being able to process the film. Because I do think the story of Jamal and who he is and how much he matters in the world, that story begins when the credit rolls. That is absolutely up to us. And so there's been a range of ways that people have said to me directly or indirectly that they have shifted perspective or been inspired to go into action or donate to organizations like Color of Change and some of the other ones that are listed in the guide. I feel good about that. I wish I could be like, I wish I could, for lack of a better word, police it more like and be sure that we were having an impact or being sure that I know we're having an impact, but what kind of impact, like to really have some data driven deliverables on that. And I, as you ask me that, I feel like I want to think about that for our next endeavor out there to figure out how to have more of a feedback loop around it. But I'm, I am really proud that the discussion guide is out there and that people have been really grateful for it and expressive about how meaningful it's been for them. Even just in, in the little time that the film has been out, there's been so much communication on social media about um, people watching the film with their families and using the discussion guide to be able to have some of those talks that are harder to have. Well, there we go. 
Uh, we appreciate you joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you do. I'm so grateful. I love this show, and I'm so I'm so grateful it exists in the world. Thank you. We have so much more to do, Lord. You know, it's like the police stuff. Yeah. You've probably heard us say this, but you know, the police have killed more people since the protests, not less, which always keeps us humble about the work ahead. Yeah. So, thank you for joining yeah. us in the work. Thank you. And here's our quick check-in with presidential candidate, Secretary Julian Castro. Secretary Castro, thanks so much for joining us again on Positive to People. We've had you before, and it's uh, great to have you back. It's good to be back. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Now, I wanted to bring you here because you are the only candidate who has an extensive plan around policing, and you just released a plan around criminal justice. So I want to talk about that, but before we jump into that, I know that you just visited a prison can you talk about that? Why was that important? And what did you learn on the inside? Yeah, throughout this campaign, uh, I've tried to go to where people are, uh, especially people who are cast out, people on the margins, uh, people that we often forget about in our politics. And uh, yesterday I visited D.C. jail uh, to speak with some of the inmates there and get a sense of, you know, what do they think that we should know? Uh, in terms of those of us who are running for president and would have an opportunity to make a difference in their lives and the lives of their families. And I just wanted to listen, you know, and and I had a chance to visit with about 40 inmates. Uh, I also had a chance to see a fantastic educational program that they have there in the D.C. jail, which is really, really notable because a lot of prisons don't even have the kind of vocational and college educational opportunities available uh, for inmates that they have there at the D.C. jail. Uh, so I had a chance to visit a couple of classrooms and, and learn more about that. Let's talk about the first chance plan. Why is it called the first chance plan? And then uh, I want to talk about some of the details. Is you include uh, things like foster care in it that don't often get lifted to the national conversation. You have a part about indigenous communities, which is also mirrored in your housing plan. Can you talk about uh, how we got to the first uh, chance plan? You know, a few months ago, I was at the University of Utah, and I was visiting with a program there, a group of people that run a program that offers educational opportunity to people who are incarcerated. And at one point in the conversation, uh, you know, I was saying, look, I know we want to work to give people an effective second chance in life. And somebody raised their hand and they said, well, you know, the real problem is that so many of the people that end up incarcerated never had a first chance in the first place. And I thought for a moment, you know, that's true. And that comports with my experience having grown up in the neighborhoods that I grew up in, in San Antonio, um, that in so many ways, we still need to make sure that people get a first chance. And that's why when people read my plan, I think it's more comprehensive than any of the other plans put forward because in addition to spelling out how we would reform our criminal justice system, it looks at how we can avoid people getting into the criminal justice system in the first place with a focus especially on uh, young men and women of color that, as everybody knows, end up in the criminal justice system way too often and disproportionately. So it does uh, talk about investing in educational opportunity, housing opportunity, improving the foster care system, because way too many people that end up in foster care also end up dropping out from high school or end up homeless or in the criminal justice system. You know, it talks about uh, health care and all of the investments that we need to, to make, including things like expanding the earned income tax credit and a child tax credit to prevent people going into the system in the first place and break that school-to-prison pipeline. I wanted to ask, too, about how has it been on the road? Is that, you know, when we spoke last, it was sort of early in this presidential race, and now we're well into a set of debates. There have been a host of forums. You've been, you've crisscrossed the country. Uh, what have you heard when you've spoken to people? I mean, we get feedback from folks out there, uh, especially, I think more and more people have recognized that if they've been following the campaign, that, that we've marched to the beat of our own drummer in this campaign. I've really focused my campaign on the most vulnerable people in our country, whether it's kids living in foster care or people sleeping on the streets or in you know storm drainage tunnel in 
Las Vegas, Nevada that I visited or people who are incarcerated, you know, families that are struggling to make it uh, on the brink of bankruptcy. And I've really lifted up the voices of people who aren't often on in these presidential campaigns and gotten a very good response. Um, it's also true that when you do that, when you focus on the marginalized, you know, that doesn't doesn't completely align all the time with what people expect in presidential campaigns. And so when you're speaking up for those folks, they're often not the ones that are the voters that are going to show up on caucus night. They're not the ones that are going to Democratic Party events. And I think that makes it harder sometimes to get traction. But, um, you know, it's a grind and we're working hard in a field that still has 17 candidates, uh, you know, working hard to make progress. Uh, you also call for the legalization of marijuana and expungement of people who have been convicted of marijuana offenses. Have you seen that be a popular idea amongst people when you talk to them? It's certainly popular online, but there are a lot of people that would say that the online community does not mimic the community that you see when you are out talking to people. Uh, and I wanted to know about the mismatch on that, because a lot of people have talked about it, and it has been slow to happen in cities across the country. Well, you're definitely right that, you know, whether it's Twitter or these other online platforms, that does not necessarily reflect the prevailing thought or sentiment out there when you go into a town hall in Iowa or New Hampshire or even Nevada. It's true that, you know, the politics of that are a little bit different, but this is actually, I would say, um, one issue where the online sentiment matches more closely what you find out there that, the idea of legalizing or at least decriminalizing marijuana, I think, has reached its point of ripeness. It's ready for a rollout nationally. I find a lot of support for that among people of different ages. The part about expunging records, I think that's newer to folks. And so people are still trying to digest that, what that would mean and so forth. But even then, I think people can take the point. What I see on that issue of marijuana legalization is it's only going in one direction, and that direction is that more and more people are supporting it. So while it may not have as fervent support among, you know, just everyday Americans that are living their lives and don't really follow these issues, don't really follow politics very closely, compared to people that do, those that gap is closing, and I think that we're moving in the right direction. Boom. And why do you think people are nervous about engaging the idea of police violence? Why have many of the people on the stage with you not talked about these issues? Well, you, you never know with anybody. You can't get in their head. But if I had to, you know, just guess, I would say that there are a lot of people that are afraid of being labeled anti-police. And, you know, I was a mayor of San Antonio. I know that we have a lot of good police officers that are trying to do their job. But I also know that we have a system that is not doing what it should, and that just like we can improve the legal profession that I'm a part of, we can improve the medical profession, we can improve other professions, we can and need to improve policing in this country. And the stakes are so high for policing because when that goes wrong, and it goes wrong too often, especially for young black men and women, it can mean somebody ends up dead or they end up injured, or their their life has changed forever. So we need to make sure that we get it right. And I see that very much as a continuing frontier in the civil rights movement that we need to be bold enough to address. And I haven't been afraid to address it. Well, thanks so much for joining us on Path to the People, and I can't wait to have you back as the campaign progresses. Thanks a lot, Dre. Good to talk to you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.